Welcome back, everybody. We're about to get into our Bible study time. Before we do, we have some text messages to look at. We're going to hear about what you had to say in the first half of the show. We're also going to have next question for our quiz. That's right. The next question for the quiz. The goat mentioned in Daniel 8.5 represents which nation? 0491 Now, in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 5, we've given you a reference right there. If you're really keen, if you don't know the answer to this one, and you're not a regular church attender, we 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 give you permission. We give you license. Head on over to Daniel chapter 8 and verse 5. You can read about the goat, and then if you keep reading through the passage, you'll learn who the goat is, and then you'll be able to answer the question correctly. But if you are a regular church tender, we advise you, we say, hey, try and try and think of who this is. Who is the goat in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 5? 0491 Of course, you will be able to get into the draw for our prizes for this week, for our draw. Uh, the French pilot, the richest caveman, and the man who couldn't be killed. Amazing journey of faith. And we're going to have uh, extra bonus bragging points if you can... Name the horn on the goat. Oh. Which you will not find in the Bible, mm-hmm. but you will find it in history and it will be super obvious. Yes, correct. Okay, so extra bragging points if you can name the horn on the goat. So the goat and the horn. Mm. Well, call me Lyle Southwell this morning because I've got the text messages you in do. front of me here and I get to read them this time. Are you ready? I left my phone at home. Yeah. Or somewhere. I don't know where my phone is. If anyone finds my phone. <laughs> I need it. It's floating around somewhere, but I get to read some text messages. Here we go. Scientific research freely accessible. When you think about it, this is a really good idea, for at least for students, but it really could dampen capitalism and motivation. But it smells like socialism to me in the bigger picture. So... Yeah, we're seeing... <laughs> we're, we're seeing that the fact that you know these these articles that include uh, research that have done by the, have been done by the state can't be monetized anymore. Like yes, that uh, that motivation could be dampened. But then at the same time, I raised my yeah, point yeah. of conspiracy. I was like, I was like, is this to if snuff out private research? If the government pays for it, the government gets the research they want. Yeah, mm. it's interesting. Interesting. Good thoughts. Here we go, another text message. Once you realize that you do not get to heaven because you are good and you do not get, uh, and you do not because you are bad, you will be released from a heavy burden. We are saved by Jesus's goodness and not our own. Yes. He only asks that we accept his sacrifice. How marvelous. Through his revelation and spending time with him, you will be changed. That one comes in from Brayden. Fantastic text message. Yep. Absolutely, spot on. Right, we there. agree. And, and Nailed it. of course, that text message comes in for, in relationship to the text that we were reading, or the story that we are reading about pastors, like the, a third of them thinking that you can be saved by just being a good person, which is like just not even the Bible. Like it, it begs the question: like, hmm, what do you spend your time reading as a pastor? Like, yeah, like, yeah, you, it does, doesn't what it? Do you, what do you spend your time doing? Like, I, you would then want to be a fly on the wall in their churches because it's like, have they convinced their entire congregation that this is what the truth is? Well, I don't think so because I think many of them would be out of a job if they admitted to what they actually believe. It certainly goes along with other research we've seen where a very, very small percentage of pastors believe in the first three chapters of Genesis. mm very, very small percentage, and yet 
none of them would ever preach that in their churches because they would lose their credibility, they would lose their reputation. Mm. And so once you go down that path, you've gone down a path of you're living a lie. Mm. And once you're living a lie, it becomes very easy to, I guess, move further and further down that. It's a slippery slope. Yeah, yeah. You end up being, you know, in the category of a third of pastors that believe that reincarnation is a valid possibility (laughs) that might be a thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is so far from the biblical model, it's hard to even understand Mm. how you could jump that far away from what the Bible teaches. The Bible is explicit. Wrestly teaches against reincarnation. Yeah, and that was uh, many of the opponents of, you know, the biblical writers. Yes. Like, if you think about New Testament times, they were speaking against... That's exactly right. They were right. like, no, this, is, this isn't true. That's <laughs> what it was. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. It was pretty wild, that one. Uh, we've, got a, we've got a text message from Chris coming in here in, in regards to uh, what we were talking about in our interview. He writes this. In Russia, they have a traditional medicine for seasonal affective disorder. Okay. It's called vodka. Yes. <laughs> they do have that medicine. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Because alcohol is a depressant. That's right. I have uh, friends who have lived in Iceland and who've lived in Russia, you know, traveling and studying. And, and oh, one of my particular, one of my, one of my good friends, she was telling me about, she's a Christian now, but at the time she wasn't a Christian. And she went over to study in Iceland and she talked about how as a, you know, just a secular person over there, it was Thursday night till Sunday night because it's so cold. Yes. You're on the drinks. Um, and that was the methodology that they, the method that they thought was the best way to be able to solve the problem of being so cold in winter. Uh, but she just talked about at the same time how, in, like, of course it would get her through the weekend, but she'd wake up on Monday morning and just feel so empty and right. so struggling. Like not even just because she's hung over from four days of solid drinking, nothing. but just so like it's almost you you could kind of impose into that situation like so far from god but yeah just so empty like mm. what have i what am i doing with my life like what how is that time valuable and whether it's like drinking and you know the partying and the sleeping around and all that stuff that that leads to it's it's not profitable for anyone mm. and it doesn't manage anything so yeah i see what you're saying here yeah they do use it to to treat their seasonal affective disorder but it just Very much so. makes them increasingly Depressed and struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have one more question here. We have one more text message. Morning, Faith of M. Could you advise the name of the psychologist that was talking the morning about mental health from Jackie? Ah, that was uh, Jennifer Skews. Yeah. Shout out Jennifer Skews. And I recently got a, a, a copy of all of her qualifications and they were pretty long and ex- a lot more longer and more extensive than what I thought that they were. So very, very well educated person. So yeah, if you if Jackie, if you're wanting to get in touch with it, give us a call. 0491-064-669 is the number to call or text. And we will show you exactly, uh, we'll tell you exactly where to go to get into contact with her. Shell is telling me that there's more text messages here, but they're just simply not coming up on my phone. Uh, that, that's, that is all I have this morning. So, guys... Thank you for sending in your text messages. Send them in more of them as we go right now into our time of Bible study. Okay, so let's get into it. Uh, this morning we are starting off in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1 to 13. 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 to 13. So the first 13 verses of 1 Samuel 16. And our story is all about patience. Mm. Is there a story about patience in Sam- in 1 Samuel? Yeah. <laughs> what what story would might that be? Any ideas? Uh, well... 
I know clearly, clearly there is because that's where our Bible study is about. That's right. Uh, but when you said First Samuel sixteen, I know exactly what this story is. Okay. This is the story of of Samuel the prophet anointing David. Like, all right, let's read it. So we start in verse one. It says, "Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul." I have rejected him as the king of Israel, so fill your flask with oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there. I have selected one of his sons to be my king. Okay, keep going. It continues on and it says, But Samuel asked, How can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you. The Lord replied, and say that you have come to make sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed, and when he arrived to Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come to me with me to the sacrifice. Yeah, that's a weird statement right there. Uh-huh. I just, I've, I've never actually jumped out to me as to how weird that is. Uh-huh. He turns up at Bethlehem, mm-hmm. and the elders are freaked out that the prophet has turned up. Yeah. What was going on? We don't know. Mm-hmm. There's a backstory there. <laughs> yeah, if anyone's got any light on that one, why were the, why were the elders freaked out that, 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 uh, that, that the prophet had turned up? But anyway, keep reading. Mm-hmm. I, I think like... I mean, if the prophet turned up here, I'd be like, yes, this is good. Well, I think considering the previous stories, like Saul is at war, like he's been at war with the Amalekites and the Philistines. And And he's been a bit erratic. He's been a bit erratic and Samuel showing up, it could potentially be bringing the news of war. We will find, yeah, well, we will find out one day when we get to heaven and ask them. (laughs) Why were you so worried about that? Yeah. What was was actually going on? There's, you know, sometimes you get these little hints in the Bible, Mm. clues that there's a bit of a backstory going on and you're not actually given the backstory. Mm. You're listening to The Breakfast Show. Contact us on 0491-064-669. All right, keep reading. She's on in verse 5. Yes, Samuel replied, I have come to sacrifice uh, to the Lord. Yet purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took, uh, took one look at Eliab and said, surely this is the Lord's anointed to Eliab, which is one of Jesse's sons. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by the appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shemiah, but Samuel said, neither is this the one that the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons w- were presented before Saul. Sorry, were presented before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, and he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one I will anoint. Okay, so here's an interesting story. And, and of course, um, Samuel takes him aside and secretly anoints him as king of Israel. Now, 
This was against all traditions in those days. You mm. never, you never honoured the youngest. Everything always went to the oldest. The oldest was the one who got the birthright. The oldest would be the one who would be given the opportunities. And yet, here God goes the opposite direction, and He chooses a kid. Mm. So He's like, okay, it's over with Saul. So I'm going to go and anoint another king, and he finds his kid. He might have been 13, 14, 15 years old, something like that, mm. around about that age. And he anoints him to be king of Israel. The first thing that goes through my mind is, okay, all right, if I was 13 years old and I was anointed to be king over Israel, what would that be like? Mm. And the second thing that goes through my mind is, you're anointing somebody here who's very, very young. You're doing this in secret. You have to do it in secret because if you, and he's got a cover story, God's given him a cover story for this mission. If you don't do it in secret, then you have a, uh, you're, you're a marked man. Saul's going to come after you mm-hmm. because Saul has become very, very erratic. And yet this is a secret that does leak out. Saul becomes suspicious because, I mean, hey, Samuel told Saul straight up, somebody else is going to be king, not your son. Mm. And so Saul is constantly looking around, who's it going to be, who's it going to be, is it, will it be this one, will it be that one, who's, who is it that has been anointed? Secretly he doesn't know, but he starts to figure out uh, over time and maybe the story starts to leak out somewhere that it's David. Mm. Okay, so as you grow up and you get a little bit older now and David becomes a warrior. Mm. David, David rocks up at the camp of the Philistines where the three oldest brothers are. Mm-hmm. Uh, not at the camp of the Philistines, at the camp of the Israelites, which is opposite the cam- camp of the Philistines. And you've got the story of, of Goliath. Goliath is there. Goliath is a giant. He's about twice the height of you and I, mm. which in those days was, I mean, in these days that would be ridiculously big. Mm-hmm. In those days, human beings were a lot smaller than what they are now, and so he would have just been overwhelmingly large. Yeah. And you've got, you know, David's like, God's on our side. Why is everybody scared to fight this guy? Because he would come out and challenge them to individual combat. And this was something that was actually quite common back in ancient battles, mm. right through into the medieval period where you'd have the two lines that would come together, they'd face off against each other, and they would just stand there for the most part hurling insults. Mm. It's actually pretty hard and it takes a lot of psyching a person, uh, psyching yourself up to actually march forward and start stabbing people that are opposite you. With swords. With swords. <laughs> yeah. You know, you look at research from the First World War where uh, bayonet charges were still a thing, and what they found was that when a bayonet charge took place, typically the soldiers on both sides would end up turning their rifles around and using them like clubs mm. because there is something about the human psyche that just recoils from stabbing. Yeah. And uh, it creates a different kind of PTSD. And so you would often have, you know, the two lines would draw up and they would spend all this, you know, spend the afternoon yelling insults at each other and seeing who can win the insult competition and not fight. Mm. Or if they did, it might take them half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour before they would psych themselves up enough to just charge in there and start killing people. And so often what would happen is during those insult periods is that young men who wanted to gain reputation would step forward and they would challenge somebody from the other side to individual combat to the death. Mm. 
And, of course, if they were able to survive that, then they would be a warrior with reputation. And then if they were able to survive the coming conflict, they would have even more reputation. And this is what has been happening. Goliath has been coming out regularly and challenging to individual combat. And there's not a person in the Israelite camp who's going to go and take this guy on. It's just not going to happen. David's like, yeah, I'll take him on. David may have been, what, 15, 16, something yeah. like that. He's a kid. He's too small to fit into armor. You, like- yep. Yep, it's not going to work for him, particularly Saul's armor, because Saul was a big dude. And so, and Samuel and David's like, God will, God will defeat this guy. We don't, mm. we've got God on our side. David was a man of tremendous faith at times, and this was one of those times. And of course, the armor doesn't fit, so he decides to take his sling. And the moment he took his sling, uh, from a strategic perspective, Goliath had lost mm. because David could strike from a distance with accuracy, yeah. and he could defeat, um, he could completely defeat Goliath's advantage. Mm. And he takes like six stones along, and I've heard it said before, it wasn't because he wasn't uh, faithful or trusting that God wouldn't help him to get Goliath on the first try, uh, but it was that Goliath had brothers. He had five brothers. <laughs> And so, he, and so he's like, like well, if I, if I have to take all of them, <laughs> then I, one, one for each of you guys, <laughs> then I will. Mm. Yes. And so, you know, this is where David comes into prominence. This is where he earns a reputation. Mm. And from here he, be, he goes on to become a warrior. He leads war parties against the Philistines on semi-regular occasions. Mm. Uh, the ladies of Judah, Judah start to sing his praises. Mm. And uh, obviously he was not just a great warrior, but he was a good-looking guy and he's becoming popular. And Saul starts to think, if anyone's been anointed, it's this guy. Mm. Okay, so here's what you've got. You've got this situation where David is now wildly popular. The ladies of Jerusalem Mm. are saying that Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Wow. He is wildly popular with the people. He has reputation as a warrior and a strategist. Saul, on the other hand, is erratic and bipolar, schizophrenic even. Mm. Uh, He is depressed at times. He is assaulted by demons at times. He is making poor decisions and is becoming unpopular with the people. Mm. So what does David then do? Because it's like, well, you know, a couple of years ago, Samuel anointed me as king, so maybe I should become king now. Mm. Is that what David does? No. No. And this is where the lesson comes in. We're talking about patience today. David doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. In fact, it will be another 15 years Mm. before David becomes king. That's right. Which, talk about meekness as well. We were talking about meekness last week. Yeah, good point. And we made the point, what is meekness? Well, it's to hold great power under restraint. It's not to be weak, but it's actually to be incredibly powerful, but really, you know, humble in your power, to hold it under great restraint. And we see David practicing that definitely in these early years, just being completely meek in in the sense of his relationship with Saul. Okay, First Samuel chapter 23 and verse 17. First Samuel 23 and verse 17. The Bible says, Don't be afraid, Jonathan reassured him. My father will never find you. You are going to be the king of Israel, and I'll be next to you as my father. Saul is well aware. 
Okay, so the secret is well and truly out by the time you get this far down in the story, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Everybody knows what's going on, and they're just waiting for it to happen. First uh, Samuel chapter 24 and verse 20. Then we get to 24 and... And verse 20, the Bible says, And now I realize that you are surely going to be king and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. Okay, who's speaking here? Uh, It is Saul. Okay. All right, so both Saul and Jonathan are very, very well aware that David is going to be the next king. David is very aware of it. Judah is very aware of it. And yet David is doing nothing to advance his cause. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Talking about patience this morning as we get into the story of David, but before we get back to it, we have another question for our quiz. Lawson, bring it to us. Our very last question of the quiz. On which day of creation did God create birds? 0491-064. Six six nine is the number to call or text if you know the answer to that one. If you do, you'll go into the draw to win the French pilot, the richest caveman, and the man who couldn't be killed. Amazing stories of faith and how people put their even their lives on the line at times to serve God's cause. But again, that number was zero four nine one zero six four six six nine. And that question was on which day of creation did God create birds? Alright, if you know the answer, you know the number to call. Let's get back into our Bible study. And as we get back into our Bible study, we're going to go to some challenging passages of Scripture. Mm. Let's go to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 5 through 7, please. The Bible says, But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. Actually, back up a bit. Back up to the beginning of the chapter. Okay, okay. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone to the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all of Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. At the place where the road passes some shepherds, Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power and to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. The Lord knows I shouldn't have done that thing to my Lord the King. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to the Lord the King and attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. Okay, so this is a pretty wild story right Mm. here. And you imagine you're a fugitive. Mm. The one good thing that has come David's way is that the Philistines have attacked and Saul is otherwise occupied, but then he Mm. ceases to be otherwise occupied. And David is a fugitive. He is hiding out in the deserts in the south of Judah. He, Saul goes down there with 3000 men. You know, David may have like 300 maybe. And they're elite. Yeah. He's taken his elite troops with him. So these are trained men, Mm. which were very rare in those days. And uh, there's this particular cave and Saul goes in there to relieve himself. He wants a bit of privacy. Well, he doesn't have as much privacy as he thought he has because David's in there with a bunch of his guys. Now, that would be freaky. You're in the back of the cave and you hear 3,000 men. And you've got no line of retreat. That's, that is that is gnarly. 
I'm like, that's the thing. Like when I read this, so obviously the rest of the story is amazing, but I read that and I'm like, oh, wouldn't you feel like this is the time? Because it's like, if you don't take this opportunity, you're done. Then, then you could die. You're done. Yeah, and and you can imagine that you know any warrior, any strategist is only go, going to go to a position where there is no line of retreat as a last resort. Mm. So these guys have been hot on David's trail, mm. and he is just keeping ahead of them. He is no longer able to keep ahead of them. He is probably surrounded because the 3,000 have probably been broken off into bands where he's got nowhere to go, and so he finds a hiding position and a defensive position, mm. and that's all he can do. That's a desperate move. To go into a cave is an absolutely desperate move for any warrior, mm. any strategist. And then Saul walks in. By himself. Mm. And then he's relieving himself. That's a very, very compromised position to be in if you are about to start a fight. Squatting down is just not a good position to be in if your life is about to be threatened. But then obviously like he goes to sleep as well. Like That's how he cuts the hem of his rope. Or was the robe on him? That's my question. The ro- yeah, the robe, was, the robe was definitely on him and David just snuck up there and has cut a piece off. Mm. Okay, so David also, when this happens, David has an opportunity like no other. Mm. He has an opportunity to take the king's life, Mm. to walk out of the cave and to call those 3,000 men and ask them to pay allegiance to him because he is the Lord's anointed. Everybody knows he is the Lord's anointed. Mm. Everybody knows that it's going to pass from Saul to him. Nobody's got any questions about this. You can walk out of that cave. You've cut the head off the snake. The snake is now dead. Mm-hmm. That's all right, guys. Who are you going to follow? Mm. Uh, because there's only one leader left, and you may as well follow me mm. because I can make thing. I make life good for you. That's right. And again, if he doesn't do that, he walks out of the cave into, into a trap. A trap of three thousand men. Yes. Mm. He actually does a smart thing, though. He walks out of that cave holding a piece of Saul's robe and holds it up and calls to Saul. And Saul turns around, sees David there. And you can imagine at that very moment, Saul recognises everything that has taken place. He recognises how vulnerable he had been, how compromised he was. His blood would have run cold knowing that he was within, you know, David's just twitch Mm -hmm. and he's dead. Mm -hmm. And uh, David has the evidence right there. It's like, yeah, I was there. I was this close to you. Mm -hmm. I was standing right behind you. I was breathing on you Mm -hmm. with a knife in my hand while you were completely defenseless. Hmm. And Saul's like, okay, that's it. I'm a terrible person. Um, And weeps and goes home, which is a very smart move on David's part from the perspective of if if I turn my my enemy into my friend, I have defeated my enemy. It doesn't last. It doesn't stick. Saul is very bipolar and it's not going to last forever, unfortunately. And so then you've got a situation where let's go to chapter 26. First Samuel chapter 26. In First Samuel chapter 26 and verse 1. Uh, probably around there. It says, Now some of the men of Ziph came to Saul at Gibeah and to tell him, David is hiding in the hill of Hakila, which is over Je- looks over Jeshimon. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel as a lead and went to hunt him down in the wilderness of Ziph. Okay, so <laughs> it was temporary. It doesn't last. Saul's like, okay, this time I'm going to go and kill him. He's changed his mind. Mm-hmm. All right, what happens? 
Uh, it continues on. Saul camped along the road beside the hill of Hakila, uh, near Jeshimon, where David was hiding. When David learned that Saul had come after him into the wilderness, he sent out spies to report about Saul's arrival. David slipped over Saul's camp, slipped over to Saul's camp one night to look around, and Saul and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, were sleeping inside of a ring formed by slumbering warriors. Who will volunteer to go in there with me? David asked. Um, and, you know, someone comes with him, uh, and I'll go with you, and they go in, and again, the same conflict happens yeah, between Joab, him Joab, and his man. They're like, they're like, hey! Kill him. Kill him. The Lord has delivered your enemy into your hands. And they're like... Joab's like, let me smite him. I yeah. won't smite him twice. That's right. And he's like, I won't need to. And David's like, um, no. Yeah. He's like, no, we don't need to do this again. He uh, picks up Saul's spear and Saul's um, jug of water and mm. sneaks back out of the camp. Mm. And once again, he stands on the hillside and he calls out to Saul and he's like, actually, he calls out to Abner. Oh man, Abner must have felt just. Oof. Bad. Uh, and the thing is, you can understand. All right, so here's how it works in, in the military in those days you would always set pickets mm-hmm. unless you were in a place that you were secure. Mm hmm. And so, you know, if you're in your home country, there's no enemy anywhere nearby and you feel secure, there's no need to set pickets, mm. get a good night's sleep. In this case, David's war party is so small and theirs is so large, they're never going to be attacked at night. There's no need to set pickets. Mm. And so they haven't. And as a result of that, David is able to exploit that and suddenly, you know, David is not doing anything here to advance his cause. Mm. And this is the lesson we learned from David. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. You were listening to We Are Messengers with Image of God here on Faith FM Breakfast Show. Lawson's going to give you some answers. That's right. Okay, our first answer was <sighs> Jeremiah, which is the Old Testament prophet who is known as the Weeping Prophet. How many of Jacob's sons went to buy corn? That was 10 of them. Fill in the blanks. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins or to blank our sins, as Lyle was saying. The goat mentioned in Daniel 8 and verse 5 represents which nation? Well, it represents Greece. And finally, on which day of creation did God create birds? He created them on the fifth day, which is good news because there's a conspiracy theory out there that birds aren't actually real. They're, they were made by the government and they get charged up by power lines, but we know from the Bible that God created them. So, <laughs> so we don't need to wonder about that one. Like the conspiracy theory is birds, birds are made for, by the government to like spy on people. Yes. It's funny. It's like, it's kind of like a joke though. But anyways, hey, they, those are the ads. Congratulations if you got those correct. But right now it is time for. Question of the day. All right, our question of the day comes in from Freco, and it says, In Acts 16, verse 3, Paul says, It doesn't matter if you are circumcised or not. Poor Timothy. <laughs> yeah, rough gig, rough gig. Okay, so here's the story with Timothy. Timothy was uh, a young man that Paul decided to take with him on a missionary journey. And this was something that Paul did. He took uh, John Mark, he took Silas, he took young people with him on his missionary journeys to train them up and to 
uh, give them the ability to be able to come, become missionaries uh, themselves. And so here he comes across Timothy. This is a guy who has been learning the Bible from his mother and from his grandmother, both of whom were Jewesses. And so within Jewish culture, the race passes down through the mother's line, not the father's line. And so because, he, of course, he had a Jewish mother and a Jewish grandmother, that means that he is Jewish. However, the other thing that was involved in being Jewish, of course, was the rite of circumcision. And because the Bible says in Acts chapter 16 and verse 3 that his father was a Greek. So in Acts 16 verse 3, the Bible says, him would Paul have to go forth with him. And he took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So it wasn't just the matter that his father was a Greek. It was like everybody knew that his father was a Greek. Okay, so this Mm. is something that would have created a great scandal if he hadn't done so because Paul's method of evangelism was always to go to the Jewish people first. Mm. He would always evangelism in the, evangelize the synagogue first. Once he had finished in the synagogue, then he would evangelize the Gentiles. So how would it, how would it be in those days in those culture when you, your, your average Jew won't go underneath the roof of a Gentile, won't touch a Gentile, won't eat with a Gentile, won't associate with a Gentile, and you bring a Gentile into the synagogue mm. and then they find out. That would be so incredibly insulting and offensive to the Jews at that particular era that it would nullify the message that Paul was trying to preach. And we find this principle, Paul actually outlines how this principle works in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 18 to 23. We'll just read a few of these verses. Uh, say from verse 20, Unto the Jews I became a Jew, that I might gain Jews. To those under the law as under the law, that I might gain those that are under the law. To those that are without law as without law, being not without law to God but under law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men that by all means, that I might by all means save some. And so Paul was like, look, if if there is a barrier, if there is an obstacle that I can remove so that I can witness to these people, I will remove it. Okay, so here's a major obstacle. Timothy, uh, the the person he is discipling, the person he is mentoring is uncircumcised and that would create just a huge furor amongst Jewish people when he witnesses to Jewish people. All right, so then he decides to circumcise them. The question is, is circumcision morally wrong? Clearly not. Is it physically a bad idea? Clearly not. So there is no... Uh, moral or physical reason why this shouldn't happen. And so it's like, well, this is going to be a little bit of pain for maybe a week or so, uh, but it's going to be worth it because you're going to be a much more effective missionary if you have this very small procedure right here. Okay, so those are the answers to why Timothy was circumcised. Hey, we have a couple more, couple quick text messages at the end of the show. Vodka helped the Russians win the war against Germany. They put it in the radiators tanks of tanks and trucks so that they wouldn't freeze. So there you go. Before they had uh, coolant and freeze, they they chuck some vodka in there. The appropriate use for alcohol, I'll just Absolutely. say. Amazing, amazing. And it was done in many different uh, places at various times. Uh, I've got a friend who was whose Italian background and his grandfather remembered the time when the Americans came through and they were running their trucks on grappa because they'd run out of petrol. That's awesome. And the, the trucks just kind of smelt like a winery driving down the road. <laughs> it literally smelt like a winery. Well, hey, we've come to the end of the show. 
All right, as you go through this day, do not forget to talk faith, to live faith, to act faith, and you will grow strong in Jesus Christ. being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.